Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. For those of you who haven't heard some of our episodes before, let me tell you a little bit about what Data Unchained is all about. Essentially, the paradigm for data access has changed. The data center used to be the center of where all data was created, generated, and processed, and today is a much more decentralized world. The challenges of getting data to remote workers, distributed applications, different cloud regions is a real challenge. Data and Chain digs into the challenges as well as the solutions in different industries to make data an asset as a globally accessible resource. So I'm going to take a moment to introduce today's guest. Um, those of you who live in the life sciences world probably already recognize him. Um, Chris Dewan is a freelance advisor and consultant to genomics, health, and life sciences companies. Chris, thank you so much for taking time on a long holiday weekend for some to join today's podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I know you're just coming down from a busy bioIT world last week and probably just getting settled and back um, into the regular flow of things. So thanks for squeezing things in. Tell us a little bit about you. Um, How did you get into the space and what has your career looked like so far? Sure, sure. I've had an odd-shaped career. Um, I started off in software and got into artificial intelligence back in the 90s uh, when computers were slow and we didn't have very much data by modern standards. So we had AI in the 90s? That's not ChatGBT? It wasn't the first? Uh, I've got a bunch of books with the word AI behind me here. (laughs) Um, And it was honestly neural networks, but lacking some of the modern algorithmic improvements that make them properly converge and become usable and useful in finite amounts of time. Um, I did that work right out of college for a military contractor. We were working on image processing to uh, help munitions hit the right kind of vehicle. And I, I found that you know frustrating because it didn't work very well at the time. And also, I wanted to do something other than kill people with my, with my life's work. And so I jumped ship and retooled into genomic biology in about 2000. Um, I joined a, an agricultural group working with soybeans and pine trees and dairy animals and pathogens on all of those. And uh, eventually spun that. It turned out what I was good at was building large-scale systems for computing, large-scale systems for capturing data, and over time, organizations that could bridge the gap between technical problems and scientific problems. Um, I was... There at the very beginning of the New York Genome Center, I did all the engineering on the IT side for that. Uh, I led research computing and IT at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And um, as a freelancer, I've served 20-plus companies all over the industry from early-stage biotech through to diagnostics and therapeutics and even pharmaceutical companies at every point, trying to get the technology out of the way of the science so that we could move faster towards better health outcomes. Very cool. I like the mission of helping people versus killing them. That's a, that's a nice <laughs> life mission. Um, but, you know, joking aside, I think it would be interesting for folks to know who maybe aren't real familiar with this space, how is genomics being used today? I think, you know, the, the famous one was Dolly. And then you know, we hear about genomics research, maybe concerning about patients' privacy or diagnostics. But can you tell us just what is the world of genomics look like today? How is it used? Because you mentioned plants and crops. And I think some people aren't aware of how genomics is, are used outside of humans. 
Mm, that's a really interesting question. And it goes to one of my, my favorite things to think about, which is the utility of sequencing a genome. So recall what we're all taught in school at some point, which is that in our cells, in the nucleus of our cells, and in other places, uh, there is this 3 billion letter long, 23 word sentence. Um, and it turns out that we have the technology now to sequence that in humans for, you know, the, the estimates vary, but low hundreds of dollars. And um, we have um, realized that there is massive, massive value in having genomes from thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people in parallel with other sorts of data about those people to illuminate the mechanisms of biology, to illuminate the mechanisms of disease. Um, and for certain very specific genetic uh, variations, we know there's a direct, a direct connection between a certain, kind, a certain um, sequence of DNA and a certain phenotypic uh, outcome, a disease. Um, we have sort of plateaued on that. And where the action is these days is in um, applying different modalities of data to understand subtle and complex interactions between gene expression and protein dynamics and what's going on in our metabolism, what's going on in the metagenome of the uh, microbes that make up, you know, half our weight. Um, how it's being used these days is um, really converging from two different sides. On the research side, we're getting more and more genetic data about people and having better and better insights into how we work as biological organisms. And on the clinical side, it's a frustratingly slow push where when we have proven therapies that rise to the level of medical care, uh, we... They first become available as potentially off-label therapies, and then eventually they become standard of care. And then eventually we convince the payers to reimburse the full cost of doing those uh, tests and therapies. It's interesting how I know things have changed a lot on you know, the patient care and the compliance pieces and how you govern data. And we'll talk about that a little bit um, shortly. But maybe before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about how the industry has changed a little bit more over time. I think when you and I first crossed paths was at DDN, where you were often you know, speaking as an industry expert to our customers and whatnot. Um, at the time, I recall the two big topics were genomes are big, how are we going to store them? And how can I shorten the time to process a genome or to run a genome sequence? You know, the, the goal of going from 60 hours to 30 hours. That seemed like the two big things that were going on in the industry. Um, how have things changed since then? That brings back great memories. Those were fun <laughs> times. Yes, they were. Uh, I, I was going back through notes and old presentations, and I used to be so proud that we had stood up data storage capable of catching 100 terabytes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I, I had Without I my slowing first down the instrument, right? That was the big yeah. thing. Yeah. And or to, as you say, take some 60 hour compute job and split it up across four machines and get it down, you know, not by a factor of four, certainly, but by a factor of two. So you're using four times as many machines, half as efficiently each. And you've got it almost down to a day, almost down to a 24-hour turnaround, you know. And I'm really thrilled by the fact that we've pretty much solved 
those problems uh, with a combination of maturation of scale out uh, data storage technologies, you know, the, and with the public exascale cloud providers bringing us very much into a world where computers are plentiful. And your job is to get your algorithms down to the point where you can spread them out as wide as possible, you know. Um, so we are no longer really in most corners overly concerned with just catching the data, with just being able to retain it. Um, we've and, and there are, of course, instruments uh, that have data capture problems, uh, cryo EM as well. And, of course, the high-energy physics Certainly. folks will break yeah. anything we give them. Um, <laughs> But um, nowadays, what we've realized is, hey, we captured all this data, and it's a big mess. We can't even find the stuff that we are looking for. We are certain that there's redundancy and inefficiency. And if only we could show the enterprise, you know, the people within our organization, what we already have, we're pretty sure there's insights available. So we're helped by organization more than by mere capture. That makes sense. So... When you say data is a mess, is it because um, it's being created everywhere? It's at the edge and data centers and clouds? Or is it because it's a mix of different types of data owned by different people? Like what causes the data to be scattered or kind of a mess to even draw insights from? One observation is that if you don't do the work of cleaning up and tagging and sorting data at the time you create it, you lose the information you would need, need to do that work. And the people who are most proximal to the data, the people who are at the lab, at the experimental design, whatever, they have a very specific reason for creating that data. Um, most of the benefit that we're talking about here from these large accumulated uh, masses of information is in reuse for purposes that the original creators didn't necessarily foresee. And so there was no particular incentive for, in most cases, the original creators of data to do a whole bunch of extra work that they wouldn't necessarily benefit from, mm -hmm. you know. And so very naturally it becomes um, you have stuff that we thought was what we went through this at the Broad Institute when I was there. There was a, a sort of an industry wide realization. I happened to be at the Broad when we when uh, when it we were going through it that the product of the scientific endeavor had been the manuscript, the discovery, okay. the compound, right? And mm -hmm. everything that you did on the way there, you needed to have written down what you did. You needed to be able to write a methods section describing in detail what you did so that somebody else could follow the same path. But the code and the intermediary representations of data that you used to get to that result were not seen as the result themselves. And what we realized is actually with the hundred plus research groups and the, you know, a couple dozen modalities of data going on in that set of at the time three buildings, um, we had this huge resource, but the actual result was the software tooling and the data that you could use as a factory to churn out scientific results, right? It wasn't this one manuscript and this next manuscript. It was a factory uh, that would just produce results. If only we could get it organized and communicate between what my uh, boss at the time referred to as cylinders of excellence, the silos that we keep our data in. Okay. Okay. I've never heard the silo called the cylinder of excellence. That sounds more positive than the data silo sounds a little bit negative, perhaps. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so as you think about 
today. I know we when we were doing a prep call to, for this, you had just said that you know AI and that buzzword was all over the show last week at, at BioIT. But you know, kind of looking at where we are today with things like leveraging AI or applications in the cloud, maybe as Illumina Dragon, those types of applications. Um, how is what is the process in most life sciences institutes right now on tagging that data? Is it kind of manual? Is it done with machines? How does that work? Um, it depends. The best practice these days is that you have a flexible storage system for metadata. And it's important to mention, I think, that we use the term metadata in different ways, depending on wh whether we came from the tech side or the biology side. Um, file system folks tend to think in terms of creation and access and modification times and um, file sizes and access control lists and very sort of file system-like properties, where scientists tend to think in terms of protocols and instruments that were used and sample identifiers and potentially patient identifiers, you know, maybe consent for re reuse. Um, and so one of the things I always try to check in on is which of those conversations we're having. Because while it's possible to have both at the same time, it's usually not the most effective way. When you think about a technology, I mean, I work for Hammerspace, where one of the big things that we focus on is merging that, where you can have that custom metadata to enhance the file system metadata. But that seems like something that should be a best practice to try to merge both types of data so you can see projects and files together. But also, maybe using that as a way to help with the sharing of data so you can know, you know, some intelligence around was this project even designed to share the data that could potentially help with some of the compliance and GDPR concerns. Would you agree with that? I would. Uh, we, we've got this acronym FAIR, which uh, stands for Findable, uh, Accessible, Interoperable, and Reusable. And it is super hard to get all four of those. It's pretty rare. And a lot of the metadata conversations that we have are just around findability. Just what do I have, right? Um, having it be meaningfully accessible uh, is a step even beyond that. Um, interoperability is the hardest one. Uh, that's the one where we really do need the data to be fit for purpose, to be in the correct format, to be the product of uh, comparable predecessor processes. And then reusable cuts two ways. Uh, there's the practical engineering constraints around reuse. And then there's the, the legal, ethical, moral side. Like, should I be able to access and reuse this? Which begs the question, for what purpose? And we're, we as an industry are not yet good at really answering the question, for what purpose? Especially in the context of data that we have inherited from the previous decades of work in this space. Right, right. You don't even know what's in there or what you might find. And will that be, like you say, for which purpose? <laughs> exactly. It's the, um, as I got into clinical genomics, I, you know, I had taken some basic genetics courses. And um, so I knew about, you know, the, the baselines of what one might find. But um, there's actually a project, uh, the Personal Genome Project, out of the George Church Lab uh, at Harvard. Um and the, the consent to the, what he required to be allowed into that project was I had to pay, pass a genomic biology test with 100%. And one of the, you know, there were questions like, I might discover that I have 
tendencies to horrible disease. I might discover that my parents aren't my parents. You know, mm -hmm. I might discover mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. Very personal and things. Very personal things. And then there, he went further into what sounded like sci-fi at the time, saying, in theory, somebody could reverse engineer the sequence of some particular gene in your in your genome and use it, manufacture it to implicate you in a crime. Mm -hmm. And this was back, you know, I don't even know, 10, 15 years ago. But now Things this so is fast. becoming... This is becoming real and plausible. And mm -hmm. there was a popular press piece just recently about environmental DNA and how much signal about ourselves we leave in every environment that we pass through. And it was not at all overblown to say, you know, you have left chemical traces of your passage that are very personally identifying. Um, and that's just the way it is now. Yep, absolutely. Um, so you've we've spoken a fair bit about genomics. Um, the rise of a concept of multiomics is coming about. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, just kind of generally speaking to ground folks who may not have heard that term? Oh, sure. I'll start with the the, the original, the OG uh, ohm, which was the genome. When we use the suffix ohm, we just mean all of them. So we went from studying genes onesie twosie to studying all of the genes, and we decided that was the genome. Uh, and so it was natural when we took, we started to look at the complement of proteins that make up an organism, that that was proteomics. Uh, and um, when we looked at RNA transcripts, the messenger molecules that move between DNA and protein, um, that was transcriptomics. And so on and on with metabolites and uh, meta genomes, the genes that come from the critters in us that are not uh, the, not human, they're microbes. Um, so a very natural thing to do would be to say, we've got all these ohms on the same subject, the same species, the same question. We could use them in parallel. We could use proteomics and genomics against on the same question. And we collectively have decided to call that multiomics. And it is a rather wildly loosely defined term where you can throw ohm after just about anything and multi covers all of them. So it's another of those, uh, like metadata that begs the question, uh, you know, in, in my, in my consulting practice, I am always asking the obvious, simple question that people are frequently nervous to ask. Like, I'm not sure what we're talking about right now. Multiomics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a big place. Could right, you break right. it down for me? Just sure we're having the, the same, same conversation, right? The exact same thing happens when people uh, talk about real-world evidence. That's a super huge place, uh, which is all of the things, it works out to all the things we know about a therapy or a drug that happen after that drug is approved for use in the market. It's out in the real world. What modalities of data are we talking about? Well, all of it. Yeah, Absolutely. So when you're thinking about multiomics, that to me would imply that different types of sciences are now working together. Is the the data sharing um, or data silos that we were talking about earlier a challenge as people are trying to figure out the multiomics project, or like if they have a if they have a program for multiomics, is the data sharing a big challenge? We kind of throw data sharing under the bus to get around the fact that it is a human problem that we're dealing with where the data formats and incompatibilities of vocabulary and 
incompatibilities of location. Uh, those are because when we have a group of protein biochemists who work in one section of an organization and a group of um, RNA transcript specialists who work in another section, and a group, you know, they went through different academic programs, they have come up through different hierarchies, and now they're being asked to work together very closely. And there are very natural human differences about how they're organized, how they communicate. You know, there are all sorts of uh, seemingly trivial but important things about mutual importance and respect and how you work together and who's who's in charge. Um, and that shows up very naturally in the way the data is organized within an organization, within a company, right? That you would have, uh, you know, the protein folks have their data sorted one way, the transcript folks have it sorted another you know, the DNA sequencing folks have it yet a third. And we talk about that like it's a technology barrier, but actually I think of it as a human communication and organizational challenge. And if you can solve the human problem, the tech problems kind of fall away. Okay. Okay. So when you go into an organization as a consultant and they say, we have some data sharing problems, we want to figure out how to, um, you know, tackle a new challenge that is using data from a few different places and maybe a couple different sciences. How do you approach that problem? What would, what would you do for that company thinking that you have both the human science side as well as the IT side in your purview? I always try to take a paired approach. I try to start at both the top and the bottom simultaneously because you have to have them both in order for a sustainable solution to take hold. Um, at the bottom side, there is a pain point, there's a problem, there's somebody who can't find what they need. There's somebody who is just trying to answer a business or a scientific question. And it's important to just get in and start answering their questions. And to do that in a way that you're leaving a trail of organization behind you, right? And this is a job that I like to assign to a relatively early career person. I think of them as a data steward. You know, they're, a, you know, a dedicated, sensible engineer who is sorting through files, changing formats, writing scripts, and putting metadata in a central location that we have quietly agreed on so that the result is not just one happy scientist, but one happy scientist, and we never have to do that exact work again. Gotcha. Right? Makes sense. So, and from the top level, I ask governance questions where for an organization to be mature in its usage of data, somebody has to own the capital asset, which is the data. Somebody needs to be responsible for it in the way that somebody is responsible for the other capital assets in any company, right? We need to know how to decide to delete data. Nobody in IT ever wants to delete data. We know we just get in trouble for it, right? So the, and most organizations don't know how to make that decision. And you want to avoid the situation where you push a really, really important decision up to an uninformed, very senior stakeholder. Like, you, we have to do the work and we have to help them. Um, once we have somebody who is, you know, and you don't need a full-time chief data officer on day one or even on year one or year two, uh, but somebody needs to own it. And that person, if they're living their life right, convenes a governance group that uh, covers the various sorts of data that uh, they believe are important to the organization and begins to have conversations. And you can start to have very sort of middle managey conversations about where do we want to invest? Why are we keeping this data? What is the value of it? It is so difficult to assign a value to a genome. 
it's it turns it turns out to be super hard to turn a genome or even a hundred of them into a dollar, right? And yet we all agree that's that's where the pot of gold is. It's an interesting dichotomy. So is it because we can't get around how to share enough data to figure out where the value is in that individual genome? Is that why kind of where the crux of the problem is? Individual genomes on their own um, don't tell you a lot, honestly, uh, in the, with, the, with the exception of, and, and I have had my genome sequence not less than three times. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of all of this stuff. I've done the 23andMe and I've done the, the various others. And what I've learned um, is a little joke. It's that I didn't have any genetic ab- abnormalities that would have killed me in my 30s. Like, and I have another way of knowing that. I'm still right, here. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. And, um, I, I've learned, um, some, you know, it, interesting confirmation things about my physiology as it relates to how I see my parents aging, you know, and what I know about my grandparents. But, um, you know, in terms of turning it into direct value for me, the, the more consensus, like exercise a little more, eat a little healthier, has been way more useful. And that is true for most of us who do not suffer a rare disease. And an exception, just to say, is um, pediatrics. Uh, There was a recent paper, I'm blanking on the source, that something like 40% of kids would benefit from having a heads up on the specific genetics of their risk factors earlier in life. You know, this leads us to the idea of uh, whole genome sequencing as standard of care for newborns. How far away are we from that, in your in your opinion? I've heard that brought up several times as a not-too-far-away goal, at least for the more first-world com- countries who have money mm. to do it. So it's no longer completely concierge, only for the rich. Um, and insurance carriers will still not reimburse it uh, because we have not demonstrated uh, the to their satisfaction that they should spend a bunch more money on us, keeping us alive longer. Uh, And there's some perverse incentives there (laughs) in the way we pay for healthcare in this country. Correct. (laughs) Um, But um, we are, the problem to my eye is one of giving benefit back to the people who are contributing data into this ecosystem where um, the, the thing the way that genomes become incredibly valuable is when we have hundreds of thousands or millions of them coupled with longitudinal information about phenotype and medical journey. That's what lets us really see how the underlying biology works. And so we find all kinds of benefits that don't really track back directly to the individuals who got sequenced. It's like the next generation that's going to do better because of it. Um, My opinion is that we have two things that are going to cause that wheel to turn a little bit bit faster. One is there are now several companies out there who will do whole genome genome pediatric sequencing for a parent on a self-pay basis. And we are still pressed to demonstrate the value directly in sort of broad clinical statistical uh, views, but um, parents will do almost anything to see a better outcome for their kids. And everybody thinks that there's hope there. And I think that there is too, right? The data is is increasingly clear. Um, and we have huge uh, nation state scale efforts that are, you know, like the UK Biobank or all of us here in the States uh, or the Saudi Genome Project or the Irish Genome Project. Um, 
that are sequencing enough of the population that we start to have enough data to say, oh, yeah, we should go ahead and finish this out. That's excellent. That's great and, to see. And the other, just to say, the other thing that changes is the cost curve on generating the data. Uh, the first genome cost us something like a billion dollars to do, uh, 20, 25, 3, two years ago. Um, and now we're down, as I said earlier, to the low numbers of hundreds for the lab process. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So as we tie up, I have a couple other kind of closing questions. You were talking about the top-down and bottom-up approach. On the bottom-up side, the idea, we, we've talked a lot about preserving and sharing data. What about the idea of deleting data? And I think you had mentioned it as the right to be forgotten. How is that approached with if I say I want you to forget my data or as an industry you decide you want to withdraw data from the shared data set, is that possible? Um, so that term comes from the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation that the European Union put in place a few years back. And when that came out, um, many people had a combination result, uh, response of, wow, that, that's really sensible. I think that's a, an eminently reasonable thing to be able to ask. And, oh, wow, our systems don't support that at all. You know, particularly as we have scraped off identifying information and mashed it, mashed uh, data from multiple sources into aggregated um, data sets. Um, so for a particular health system, yes, uh, they, you, you could on demand say, please delete my data. I'm sure that, sure that they would complain, you know, and they would probably abuse other regulatory domains to say, oh, heavens HIPAA, you know, it doesn't really work that way. Or heavens, you know, CLIA or whatever, you know, and you would have to dig in and say, no, I'm asking for a very, very specific thing. Practically speaking, the gap is that um, once data goes into a larger aggregated data set, once that data set goes out and starts being used in these years and decades long process of clinical development, it's really not meaningfully possible to like stop the bus anymore. Um, a former boss talked about the need for better um, regulation around appropriate usage rather than regulation around data hiding. So I think that we'll be able to say, don't include me in any future work. But I think it'll be very hard to unwind in the same way it's going to be impossible to unwind what we've already done with large language models that trawled the publicly available Internet. You know, in, in my opinion, certainly violating copyright. And that horse has left that barn. Right. And it will not get back. It will not be put yeah. back in. <laughs> it's something we mentioned in the, uh, the run up to this. There's a, a fascinating book um, that goes deep on that titled Who Owns the Future? by uh, Jaron Lanier, and he talks about uh, a different world, and we could build this world, but we're not there now, where references on the internet are bidirectional, that you can see where something came from in addition to where it is pointing to. And with that, you could imagine passing value back to content creators. You could imagine passing value back to people who offer up data about themselves for research uses. That value doesn't have to be monetary. Uh, I participated in one story uh, study from the Coriel Institute, where from time to time to this day, I get an email saying, thank you for participating. Here are the publications that you supported. Very cool. That was all I ever really wanted from participating in that sort of research was to mm -hmm. know that it helped. And it did something the fact that and that what they still, learned from it, perhaps. Yeah, that, the fact that that is still so rare and surprising tells me that we've got plenty of work left to do in this space.
Gotcha. So you mentioned GDPR kind of around more regulatory standards. Um, Mm -hmm. Who else is doing work in this space as we close up the conversation, um, you know, around not just standards, but overcoming some of the challenges we talked about? Are there certain organizations that you feel are doing pretty good work in this area, or at least trying to tackle it? (laughs) The the obvious response is the Global Alliance for Genomic Health, the GA4GH. They're a standards body that got going, I think, a decade ago now and have really done great work in terms of just defining um, standards of data interchange and API and best practice and also being a conversation beyond organizations, beyond any one particular organization. Um, I think another important one, there is a project called the Matchmaker Exchange, and it is a matchmaker for physicians who have observed people with rare genetic disorders looking for other physicians who have seen people with that same genotype. That the having a rare disease is a terrifying and lonely process. The The standard is social media. You know, desperate people, desperate parents going from physician to physician, carrying reams of printouts, right? And the Matchmaker Exchange does a certain amount of connecting those people into larger communities, which I think is really important. Interesting. Are they a nonprofit type of group or are they? They're a nonprofit, yeah. That's what a great mission. I love that. I'm going to have to look more at them. It's a. it's a constellation of groups that do this work in particular disease areas. Uh, that have agreed to work together across all of their particular projects. Yeah, very cool. Hey, I have some family history where that type of situation would have been much easier on, on my father in particular, if something like that was well known. So it's great that you're sharing that just so people are even aware it exists too. Yeah, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, and it, sadly, though, Facebook groups are still you know, the load-bearing part of the ecosystem. So, Chris, you have a unique set of experience. I I think there's only a handful of people out there who have both the the science as well as the technology side and their expertise. If folks listening to this podcast are interested in talking to you about their environment, their challenges, what's the best way to get in touch with you? I am radically easy to find. Um, My professional website is duan.org, D-W-A-N is my last name, .org. And uh, my email is my first name at duan.org. And I would love to hear from anybody who wants to work to get tech out of the way of scientific and medical progress. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today to have this podcast and also for being willing to open yourself up to having folks who listen to the show reach out to you. I think that that's great. And a lot of um, good can come by starting these conversations together. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Hammerspace.